What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, I'm talking about a recent crowdfunding failure that I experienced and just trying to unpack why it didn't do very well, things that I noticed, lessons that I learned. And it was interesting. A few weeks ago, I don't know if you saw this, seems like a lot of people didn't even know that it was happening, which is obviously one of the, the big issues with the campaign. But I ran a campaign for this project called Find the Fun, and it was a whole bunch of game design resources. It was a book, it was a, a game, and it was an online course. And I, going into it, felt really good about it. The community has grown by leaps and bounds since the last time I ran a game design book campaign. That campaign had close to $70,000 and right around 2000 backers. And I didn't necessarily think this campaign was going to match that, but that at least gave me some, some idea about what I could be uh, aiming at and shooting for. And then this newest campaign, it just kind of stumbled right out the gate. And I could tell it was not going to go well after the first, I would say, eight to 10 hours. By day two, I knew I was going to need to cancel it. And then before the week was out, I, I canceled it and started to figure out, okay, how do I regroup? What do I need to figure out? How did I miss the mark? Because it, I mean, let's see, looking at the campaign page, it only had 216 backers. And to give you context, the previous game design book had 400 backers on day one. So twice the number of backers in way less time. And then obviously, you know, close to 2000 by the end. And so I, I called up my friend, Andrew, who runs Next Level Web, who runs Crowdfunding Nerds. And he handles a lot of my marketing stuff. And we were just chatting about, okay, what went wrong? What do I need to do? Let's get some surveys out. Let's get some feedback from people. Let's figure these things out. And we had lots of conversations. And then I thought, you know what? We need to make this into a podcast episode. And, and so that's what we did. And we talked about all these different things with my personal campaign and other campaigns that we've seen, both things that have worked really well and things that could be improved. And that's not just for small companies. It's big companies too, that have a tendency to make some similar mistakes that I did. And so we talked through ways to bounce back and overcome failure. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you learn and all the different things that you can do to, to kind of get back going and, and relaunch to success. And, and hopefully that's going to be the case. I'm getting ready for the relaunch of Find the Fund over on Kickstarter here very soon. We talk a lot about customer avatars and understanding who your product is for and really aiming at them with the campaign page, with the marketing, with everything you're doing and making sure you don't mix up too many customer avatars, too many ideas into one project because a lot of times that can be very confusing we talk about lots of things we talk about the biggest epiphany moment of my entire bgdl career and how just like just slap myself in the face and go oh dummy and and so that was a, a big moment we'll talk about all that and, and what that looks like and a whole lot more and so hopefully if you're looking to run your own crowdfunding campaign or if this is just something that you find interesting you will get a lot of value out of this episode because i think it's important to not only talk about the successes, but to just as much, if not more, talk about failures, why things didn't go to plan, why things didn't work out the way that you hoped. And so hopefully uh, you'll be able to find a lot of really good, interesting nuggets of wisdom in this episode. In other news, this episode is sponsored by Crowdfunding Nerds, also known as Next Level Web. This group of crowdfunding specialists has worked on over 100 projects and helped raise nearly $15 million. But the truly amazing part is that most of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They charge flat fees and offer simple monthly pay-as-you-go plans. And the record for funding projects on day one is over 90%. I've personally been working with them for years, and they have been instrumental in helping me raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for my own campaigns. 
Andrew and his team are honest, hardworking, and reliable, and they have been absolutely phenomenal to work with. So if your game is awesome, but your email list is pitiful, visit crowdfundingnerds.com and fill out a contact form today. All right, so Andrew, how many campaigns at this point have you worked with? Uh, we've run about 125 at the moment, uh, between 125 and 135 Kickstarter campaigns and GameFound campaigns. Um, we just most recently launched Planet Unknown with Adam's Apple Games, which has been a lot of fun. They got nominated for Kenner Spiel like a few months before our campaign launched, so that was that was really exciting. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Adam. He and I have worked together on some things kind of behind the scenes, game design stuff in the past. And he's an awesome guy. All right, so you're over 100 campaigns at this point. How many of those have failed or were canceled? So uh, it's less than 10, um, probably about five. And that's just me uh, figuring out, you know, and, and some of these that failed relaunched with success. Um those were some of the most interesting campaigns, but you're, you're among those now. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited because what my favorite thing about um, when someone fails a campaign, it doesn't mean that you are a failure. It just means that you have excellent lessons to learn. And uh, what I love about this topic is just we're, how we're going to dive deep into what lessons can we learn from failure? I think failure is a normal part of our lives that we have to get used to that winners fail a lot. Um, you know, I, you interviewed Sen, Sen Fung Lim. Uh, he's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. Uh, so am I. And, uh, you know, he will probably tell you the same thing that I would in the room. Every so often, you know, somebody has a hard time, you know, usually like a kid will, will just say, oh, I got tapped out and they're mad about it and that kind of thing. The first thing I always say is, who do you think has been tapped out more times than everyone else in this entire room put together? Me, you know, and uh, you just, you have to humble yourself in order to be lifted up, right? You have to learn lessons, um, in, you know, through uh, failure and in order to achieve greater success. And uh, so if you're willing to yeah. learn, right, if you're willing to learn well, from those lessons. Well, that's the thing. Sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. Yeah. And I think that's the mentality you have to take with it. It's not like, oh, I lost, mm -hmm. oh, I failed. It's like, no, what an incredible opportunity to grow and figure things out and come back better, come back stronger. And, you know, that's kind of where I'm at. And then, but it, but it depends on you and how intentional you are in that regrouping phase and in that relaunch and actually diving in to the, the details and, and, having some tough conversations with yourself in the mirror or with your backers or with people you know, on your team and going, okay, this didn't go so well. Why? Like, what's the real honest truth? And then how do we turn that into action items? That way, when we relaunch, we've answered all these questions, we've solved these problems and we get more people to come in and, and back the thing. And so that's kind of where I've been. And it's been, it's not fun. Like it really sucks. Like it's not one of those things like, oh, this is so much joy. You know, I, you know I'm so glad that uh, I came out the gate and fell flat on my face. That's so much like, no, that's never going to be a good thing. But you have the potential there to get better, come back and, and do some really cool things. And like, I've had to cancel campaigns in the past. It's not the first time I've had to do this. And so in a lot of ways, it was easier. <laughs> uh, I honestly copy pasted some of my previous cancel like update stuff. It's like, oh, well, this is kind of like very, very similar. Let me just borrow from that, change a bunch of the, you know, some of the language. I, I changed a couple of metaphors. Like in the past, I've used basketball metaphors and th this time I use football, you know, but 
but again, you have this wealth of information now that you can you can pull from. So when this happens to your clients, what are the things that you tell them to do? Like what's the top five or top whatever list where you're like, okay, we need to do this, need to do this. This is how we figure things out. What do you tell people? Well, the first thing is before we even launch the campaign, I try to advise my clients to pre-plan for different eventualities. Um, and we did, uh, so I run a podcast now called the crowdfunding nerds podcast. And one of our most popular episodes, I think I might've even talked to, to you, uh, on, on a previous BGDL podcast about this topic, which was the, um, four and a half possible outcomes to your Kickstarter or you know, your crowdfunding campaign. Uh, one of them is abject failure. There's no way you're going to succeed. Uh, there's likely failure then marginal success. You know, the likely failure is like, if you hustled really hard, you could hit that funding goal, but you're only going to hit maybe 110% of your goal or so. Then marginal success, maybe 100 to 150%. And then there's a great success, which is three to 500% of your goal. You fund it on day one and you hit three to 500%. And then there is what I call catastrophic success, which is not a good thing. Um, it is where you um, are some small timer with the very first uh, campaign, you are unprepared for 15,000 backers and you will fail to deliver if you don't learn um, a whole lot, right? Uh, we've seen this in many campaigns. In fact, most most famous failures are um, campaigns that have funded six figures or more, right? And so anyway, uh, we try to tell clients, you need to have a plan for each one of those eventualities. What are you gonna do if you fail? And that's one of the things that I think People inherently don't like to think about that. Um, we often as designers, I'm a fellow designer myself. I've gone to Kickstarter, funded a, a game and whatnot. And um, about actually about a month from delivering deliverance. Uh, so I, I try to help people understand that you are looking at your project with rose colored glasses, but as an outsider that has no stock in your game, I often play devil's advocate with people and will tell them like, you know, if, if you fail, like, uh, what will you do? Um, sometimes they don't have answers. And uh, the thing that I, I feel is the most dangerous, really, that is kind of the heart of the matter that I try to get at is uh, when people are prideful and they don't want to consider these things, um, they oftentimes will make excuses for why they failed and say, oh, it was because I didn't have enough. I didn't spend enough on marketing. If I just spent enough on marketing... I would have been, I would have done great or, oh, it's because, you know, I, um, you know, I, whatever, you know, so many, so many things. And I know as a former football player, um, you, you probably have an opinion or two on excuses. And, um, so I try, I try very gently to, um, to kind of, you know, to use a Brazilian jiu-jitsu metaphor, strangle those out of people before the, you know, the stuff hits the fan. Um, right. Uh, you know, I mean, we could pause and kind of talk about that for a little bit and then revisit something else. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, making excuses, I don't know if making excuses ever helps anything in any, any part of life. Like it, in what moment can you go, Oh, I failed not because of me, but because of all these, you know, exterior forces. It's like, well, first of all, you just gave agency of your life away. You just said that I am not in control of the things that I am actually in control of. And so I think it's very dangerous no matter what you're doing, whether it's in relationships or business or anything to just start making excuses. And 
while you're doing that, you're also wasting time that you could be gathering data, that you could be figuring things out, that you could be regrouping and resetting and, and coming back. And I'm not saying, you know, don't take a few minutes and feel sorry for yourself because you're going to do that. You're, like, you're going to go, man, all that work for this. And it's frustrating and it's heartbreaking. And especially if you've worked, you know, a year or two years or, you know, a long, long time building up to this thing and you felt like you had everything in place and you followed all the advice and you listened to all the podcasts and watched all the videos and, you know, had all these checklists. And then you come out the gate and, you know, 17 people back on day one and you're like, wait a minute, like that hurts. And I feel like sometimes people get also in, in denial where, you know, they come out the gate and it's not good, but they're like, no, no, we're going to, it's like... You're probably not like I knew this thing was a failure on see, I launched on Monday morning. I knew by Tuesday afternoon. OK, we're going to cancel. We're going to figure we're going to do something different. Like, you know, pretty early uh, based on trends and things like that. And I was also kind of good to have a previous body of work because I feel like a lot of times new creators come out and they don't really know what to expect. They're not sure they don't have any evidence to look back on and go, OK, here's you know what I've done in the past and, and what I think I can do now. But like with my campaign, um, the last time I did a game design book, it had right around 2,000 backers and it made $66,000, which is not like life changing, or but like that's that's pretty good. That's a pretty solid. You can build a business <laughs> around that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And not so, Brandon Sanderson numbers, but yeah, no doubt. But when this campaign came out the gate and it only had like 100 backers on day one, where the previous campaign had 400, and it was only, like, only trending towards around. 300 total backers, $10,000, maybe it's like, okay, I need to do something different because I have a body of work, you know, of evidence I can look back on and go, okay, this is what's possible. Now I didn't expect to come out and make $70,000 in this campaign. I think that would be ridiculous, but more than a hundred people on the first day, it's like, okay, I have a messaging problem. I have a value issue. I have a confusion. Like I'm confusing people. Like there's something else going on that I could fix and I just got to figure out what those things are and then come back better, which will be better for my business, obviously, but also better for customers, better for backers, it, provide more value, provide more specific, you know, things to them. So I think that's another thing. It's not just about your business. It's also realizing that whatever you're promoting, that the people that you're promoting to don't see enough value in it to back it. Now, maybe it's a price issue. Maybe they're just confused about what it is. Maybe you have too many different things going on. We're going to talk about that in just a minute because I think that's a, a really dumb thing that I did as part of this campaign and some other campaigns doing it right now that would probably make millions of dollars more had they just not you know made this fatal mistake. And so anyway, that's a lot of a lot of information. What are you yeah. seeing in all that? What do you pull from it? Well, the so you you asked what would I tell people? A lot of the time, you know, it's preventative, but when when somebody when a Kickstarter campaign fails, I find it's generally because of one of three things. Um, the simplest one is oftentimes relegated to new creators that didn't have an audience. And that is the simple adage of you must bring a crowd to fund. If nobody knew about your thing, it might be the greatest thing, but then it, it'll, it dies in silence on, you know, there's so much noise on Kickstarter game found that is exciting for people to pay attention to that you have to kind of carve out an audience that was ready and expecting your launch. So that's a really important thing. And as I said, that's oftentimes, you know, limited to new creators, people that have an audience. Um, it's usually not that it, it's, it boils down to one of two other things, which is either the offer, which we can, you know, get into or the messaging. 
as you said. So um, Dave Ramsey is, uh, you know, a financial advice guru. And he said that, you know, if you if you're looking to invest in something that you don't understand, you should not invest in it. Um, Bitcoin, for example, I had, you know, at the time, Bitcoin was like $40,000 for a Bitcoin. I have a, a group of friends that, uh, you know, have a Facebook message thread that like is or a Facebook message group that's all about like cryptocurrency. And they're like, oh, you got to invest in this, Andrew. You got to invest in this. And I was thinking, well, you know, I've got enough cash, but I need to like buy my next house. We're planning on this move to, uh, you know, 1200 miles away. And um, I'm going to just save. I'm not going to invest into this thing because I really don't understand it. And then it went to like $60,000 of Bitcoin. And I'm like, oh, I feel kind of stupid, you know, but I still don't understand it. So I'm still not going to invest. And then now it's, uh, you know, I don't even know where it is, but it's definitely not anywhere near 60,000. Right. Um, and it, it's just, it's a good idea not to invest in something if you don't understand it. And I think that, um, people that are buying products that are luxury products that aren't necessary for life. Like if you don't understand what toilet paper is for, you'll buy it because if someone else comes over that is used to that, it, you, you'll be embarrassed. Um, you don't understand like why an iPhone's so great. You'll buy it because if you whip out an Android, you'll get made fun of by people because you don't have an iPhone. Um, I don't understand why a Tesla is so good, but you know, I'll look like a hero if I buy it. I know that much. I don't understand why. Um, I don't understand how it's going to be better, but I, you know, certain things you just know the messaging is, is clear enough. Um, if, if you don't understand, I still think it's a bad idea if you don't understand something and, and you know, to buy but um, if your customer doesn't understand, oftentimes with a luxury product, they just won't buy. They'll say, oh, I'll just favorite it and check it out later and consider my options, you know, maybe figure out what I want. But um, that was like your one time where their mind was open about your project. The next time might be the 48-hour mark where your product, where your project's about to end. And then they're going to go back and say, oh, this project's like 105% funded. It doesn't really look like a winner to me. Um, maybe I'll pledge five bucks because Gabe's a good dude. And I understand that, that I, that I like him. So five bucks, right. Um, you, you miss your opportunity. The one opportunity you had when the customer's mind was open, they didn't understand what you were trying to sell. So that's one huge issue. Um, the other one come, it, you know, boils down to, as I said, the offer, what I mean by that is the, the, the total package. So there is a price that they're going to pay for the game or, or whatever it is, right? Then there's the price that they're going to pay for shipping. And if you're a European, you're going to pay VAT, um, you know, or, you know, there are, there are other countries that, that deal with a uh, value to tax. Um, and so there's that. And then, you know, you, you consider the quality of the gameplay components, how many, you know, like it's, this is a $59 game. So I expect, a, you know, Maybe I don't expect like neoprene play mats or anything or, or super premium components, but if it's 90 bucks, like there are miniatures in there, there better be miniatures in there, or I, it's just probably not worth it. Right. And so backers will do this kind of invisible, I don't know, uh, invisible to you math equation in their head that, that is like, okay, is the value for what I'm receiving a good value? And you know, they'll look at shipping it's like, all right, I have a $50 product and shipping is $20, uh, people would rather pay $59 for that product and $11 for shipping. Right. Um, you know, uh, th there are certain, uh, you know, 
landmines people can uh, can fall on um, that they might not expect. And maybe like to a lesser extent, the offer is like, is this product good? Maybe that's more related to messaging. If you don't have a decent reviewer that has taken a look at it and has at least uh, given you a gameplay preview, then you might just be embarrassed of like the quality of the game. And I don't know if I should uh, get this because I'm not going to watch the review, but shoot, at least uh, there is one. I could watch if I wanted, you know? Um, so these are oftentimes reasons that people fail. And I feel like most of the time you can control your success or failure based upon having a good offer with a clear message and that kind of thing. Now, um, you know, in some cases, like I feel like in, in this, um, in your most recent campaign, uh, what we thought was a clear message might not have been. And so we learned something. Um, so I don't know what your, what your thoughts are on all, all that. Yeah. I think another thing to add into that invisible equation that backers are, are playing out in their minds is time. How long is this going to take to get to me? How long is my $50 going to be wrapped up in this campaign? Is it six months? Is it a year? Is it 18 months? Because they're playing out that's part of it as well. Time is always a cost. You know, we spend money or we spend time or sometimes both, but that all kind of plays in there together. And so that, that definitely factors in. Um, but yeah, as far as like confusing, if you confuse, you lose. Right. And so if a backer lands on your page and you have all these different things, all these different angles coming at them and they, they're not entirely sure. It's like, well, well, what do I want? Do I want this or that? Do I want the bundle do I want this thing over there? But now, but now it's $200 more. And so anytime they're having to like do all these mental gymnastics to figure out buy or not, you're, you're losing people. That's one thing Amazon is so good at. You can literally click one button and the thing is now going to show up at your house. Like they're, they've removed all the obstacles other than can you move one finger and click the thing? That's it. And so, in doing that, they've, you know, exponentially blown, you know, blown up their uh, sales and whatnot. Now with a crowdfunding campaign, you can't exactly do that. There's a little more, more to it, but I think you can remove as many barriers as possible and guide someone along almost like using, using your, your campaign page, like a funnel in and of itself. Right. And just kind of guide them along. What I, what happened in my particular campaign. So I had three products that were fairly different. I had a book, that is about how to, it's called find the fun, right? And it's about how to take an idea and turn it into a published game. It's the full process that it's the book I wish I had had years and years ago when I was first just starting out and I wish someone had handed me this with all these things that I know now, you know, after doing this for, I don't know, over a decade, almost 15 years, uh, the things I, I really want people to know, right? How to go from, okay, I've got this thing in my mind, prototype it, play test it, get it published, get it out into the world. Then I had a game that in a lot of ways is an add-on. It's a fun little thing. It's a solo game about designing board games, right? It's silly. It's fun. It's not, it's not like super educational. Like you're not going to read a card and be like, oh, now I know how to do this. It's, no, it's just fun. But it was like a little thing to throw in there. Limited edition. I'm not planning on printing very many. Just as like, hey, this is a fun thing. And I think that works as a campaign that works. And that's what I'm doing with the relaunch is the book, which is the main focus. And if you want this fun limited edition game, throw in there too. There's an add on. I'll throw a bundle in there to kind of, you know, make the price point cheaper, stuff like that. But then I had a third thing, which was this pretty massive, somewhat expensive online course targeted at people who have been designing for a while who are ready to go pro. 
either they're ready to start re- like figuring out how to get their games on store shelves through a publisher, or they're going to become a publisher, go through crowdfunding themselves, and do that. And that's that's a totally different market. The book is aimed at people who are just, I don't know, beginner to intermediate. The course is aimed at people who are like, legit, let's, let's get this thing figured out. Like, they've got lots of games. They play tested. They've been trying to get published. Maybe they've run some campaigns and they failed or you know, whatever. Like that's a whole new customer avatar. And so what happened was I had all these people that showed up and were interested in the book, but then they got into all the weeds of all the information about the course. And then like, well, what, what is all this? And it confused them. And it wasn't, you know, again, it's not like these people are dumb or anything. It was just too much. It was overwhelming. It was too many things. And a lot of the feedback I got was people said, yeah, I, I basically, I went, I was going through the page, something else popped up and I kind of forgot, <laughs> which, you know, when you've got that many things going on, when your funnel is too big, that happens, right? When you have too many different messages. And so that was one of my, that, that was probably the biggest issue. No, I'll say the second, the second biggest issue. The first biggest issue I'll talk about in just a minute, because I just completely f- failed on one like massive thing, but and I think that's happening right now with some other campaigns where basically a publisher is saying, okay, I'm going to throw the kitchen sink into this thing. We're going to have this game and this other game and a RPG game about it. And we're going to do this other thing. And it's like, okay, that's four campaigns that you're putting into one. And from a business standpoint, I understand it's so much easier to just run one campaign, but you're losing out on so many people because it's too much. It's too many different things. It's overwhelming. You're, you're, there's no focus. And again, you confuse, you lose. So that was that was a major uh, learning opportunity there. And so with my stuff, the, you know, the relaunch would be the book in the game. And then I'm going to launch the course as a totally separate thing later on. And I'm really excited about that. I'm, yeah, I think it's going to be really great for the people that it's aimed at, but I got to make sure that I'm aiming at just those people and not getting convoluted, you know, murky waters with everybody kind of thrown into the same campaign. Right. Yeah. You know, um, one of our clients is Modifius Entertainment and uh, they have a fairly large email list. They've got a lot of big intellectual properties. Um, Some of the biggest ones are like, uh, you know, they're Elder Scrolls and, you know, they've got Skyrim, uh, Skyrim board game just um, released. They've got Fallout. They've got um, Star Trek, Conan, Dune. Like we're we're prepping for the Dune RPG, uh, like the, the massive increase in sales that will come with the Dune movie. Um, that was very fun to run the Dune RPG when the Dune movie came out, but the next run is going to be very big. It's going to be quite a lot of money thrown at it and whatnot. Um, and one of the things that Modifius does it, well, we, we do is we segment their emails so that they don't, um, you know, send elder scrolls information to fallout fans because those, those people may, yeah, if you play Fallout, you may have played Skyrim or whatever, but um, not necessarily. And I know you as the Fallout company. I don't know you as like the Elder Scrolls company or the Skyrim company. I am, um, you know, it's just uh, confusing your your messaging because your audience knows you for one thing and you are going to market to uh, another to them. It's uh, risky and has to be done uh, delicately. You know, it's not impossible, but it has to be done delicately. And I think that the um, the key really is uh, focus, as you said. You know, you mentioned the word focus. Um, the campaign, are we allowed to say the name? I mean, it's Gloomhaven because the, they got so many. Here's yeah. the thing. I wish my like 
campaign that doesn't do very well could make millions and millions of dollars. Um, and I don't, I don't yeah. I'm not throwing shade at anybody. I'm just looking at a business opportunity that seems to be missed because you have four amazing campaigns that you're trying to run at the same time. And I get why to do it as a business, but I feel like there are like to just do an RPG campaign with miniatures would make $10 million by itself or, you know, like would make a whole lot of money by itself. If you really leaned into and focused on it, um, just doing the uh, Frosthaven reprint would make a lot of money by itself. Just doing Gloomhaven second edition. I don't know about that one. That's what, that's the one I'm not sure. I don't know what the market saturation is for the Gloomhaven base game at this point. Um, so, but anyway, you know, it's interesting because each of the, so if, if uh, Mr. Isaac Childers is listening, I would love to be your consultant. I, I have opinions. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I know also that Isaac has really excellent people surrounding him. Uh, one of my buddies, Ross Thompson is working for him now. And that guy is a wealth of, um, of knowledge in regard to marketing. And I, I'm, I'm certain that they are making good decisions behind the scenes and making good moves and pivoting and doing what they need to do. But, um, you know, what, what, I, what I feel is that there, there are a number of different ways you can look at each um, intellectual property. And rather than say what I think they could have done better, what I would say, um, I would point to a company that I think does this exceedingly well because they have the resources and they've, um, they have the rhythm down, Simon. Simon has made $100 million or more from Kickstarter. And they have, I mean, you can go to tabletopanalytics.com and check out how much money Simon has made. I want to say um, they have made three times at least more than the next biggest creator on, on Kickstarter in the board game space. Um, really, I guess, in the game space, period. And, uh, you know, if you don't include weird things like Star Citizen and whatnot. But um, so Simon. Uh, releases a Marvel themed, you know, Marvel themed game. And that, you know, that's on Kickstarter. And then a couple of months later, they release Zomicide, um, you know, White Death or whatever. They are really, um, they're really, really good at building hype for a campaign. And then that thing's humming in the background. And those people are excited about that particular thing. And then they launch another thing with, uh, again, a crowd that is ready for this other thing that may not may or may not have been interested in the Marvel thing, but now is very interested in the Zombicide, you know, the new Zombicide game. And uh, I think that they have a really, really solid system for treating their intellectual properties um, like stars. You know, if you, if you watch Gordon Ramsay and any one of his food cooking competitions, they'll, you know, it's like, all right, we're cooking with salmon today. And if you don't make the salmon the star of your dish, you are likely to be eliminated. You're likely to be in the bottom three or whatever. And it's a place you don't want to be in this competition because the main ingredient wasn't the star, um, you know, and in the same way you've got, uh, we're, we're obsessed with Gordon Ramsay at the moment. Sorry. Sorry. I'll probably use him more often in this podcast, but um, the star of the company is, you know, for, for, you know, going back to, um, you know, Cephalofair with uh, Gloomhaven and Frosthaven and the Gloomhaven RPG and the miniatures of Gloomhaven. Those four things are each stars. And it was... They just added a fifth. Oh, really? 
they added a solo game by my good friend Joe Quitful, which I am super excited for Joe. Joe's a phenomenal guy. I've worked phenomenal guy. I've worked with him in the past with Hand of Destiny. He's an amazing designer that can take massive games and turn them into like these tiny handheld things. And he made a game <laughs> called Gloom Holden. Which oh yes, I, I know. If I remember yes. correctly, and they made it official. Yeah, exactly. Um, oh. If I remember correctly, I think I gave Joe the title of that game, and so I think <laughs> I am due like one percent of this. But anyway. Um, <laughs> But anyway, Isaac, he sent it. free burritos at every convention you go to. <laughs> exactly. But Isaac has turned it into an actual product. It's like $15. He hired Nikki Valens, mm-hmm. who's another phenomenal designer to come in and do a lot of development work. And they like expanded the thing. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. I'm mm-hmm. super excited for it. It's a fifth thing. It's another thing to mm-hmm. put into this campaign. It's like, I think you that one what? makes more sense. Like yeah. to come in and do that, like on top of one of these others. But when it's the fifth one, it's like, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know. You're just, again, you're confusing more people. Yeah. You know, I look at uh, Jamie Stegmaier as a great example of somebody who decided to move away from crowdfunding because he, uh, you know, and he has his reasons for that that he shared. The, what what sticks in my mind most is how he didn't, it almost felt like a rat race of marketing and the mean people, the trolls and other things like that. Like if I could just not deal with that, then I would be happier. I would be a happier human. Um, I kind of feel like this this Gloomhaven, Frosthaven, you know, all at all campaign is coming from like the mind of a programmer. It's like the marketing is necessary. Let's get to the part that we care about, which is making great games. And, you know, we'll let all the people who want to buy them just, just buy them. And I feel that the, the opportunity, you know, with somebody that maybe comes from a marketing background, is like, let's take each one of these and make each one a star and yes, maybe some campaigns won't do as well. Like you had mentioned the Gloomhaven second edition we could have, but at the same time, I, as a marketer would say, look, you might revive excitement in Gloomhaven. You might get people to bust out their existing game and play it again with the reprint that has new quests and new classes and updated revamped rules um, and that kind of thing. And then Frosthaven reprint is an excellent, I mean, I personally think that it's a decent thing to add on because it's not, you know, to me, it's kind of not meant to be the star. It's something that had amazing success and people are looking for it still. They're looking for an opportunity to get it if they want it. That I do feel like is an appropriate tack on to a, you know, Gloomhaven second edition. But then you've got this Gloomhaven RPG, which, you know, um, since RPGs kind of became popularized in the eighties, you had uh, dice rolling for combat and all of that. And what Isaac has done is he's added to his card system, the card play system, which everyone loves in Gloomhaven and Frosthaven. He's added another number, which is basically your dice roll to the cards. You, you might draw a card or whatever, and it'll have a certain number on it. Success or you know succeed or fail a test kind of thing. And um, I have looked at the campaign page a bunch, and I don't think I knew that. It's, uh, yeah, actually I knew that from like their road to the, I forget what it's called. It's like the carnival thing, but you know, this is, is really kind of central to the point of that is a star that really needs its, uh, time in the, in the sun. I feel like, you know, it's 15 minutes of fame to stand on its own, to say, this is the one thing all RPGers that have played Gloomhaven rejoice. This is the thing that you need to Insta back. And I think they would have, right. Um, and then, of course, the miniatures of Gloomhaven is its own star as well for reasons that I think everybody listening to this could probably understand. 
Right. And I think, I think ultimately the issue we're really talking about is you've got two, the same thing I ran into is you have two very different potential customer avatars, because if it was just the Frosthaven reprint and Gloomhaven second edition, I think that works really well because you have the pretty much the exact same person who's going to be interested in both products. But now that you're adding a completely different element to it, that's when you start running into issues. That's when you, you, you have customers that start bumping into each other. It's like, well, is this for me? Is this for you? Like, I want that, but I really, I, I don't care anything at all about that. And so I think you can run a campaign where you do offer multiple products, multiple games. I'm going to do this here soon. I've got a, a hunted campaign that's going to have like three new installments in the hunted series. But if you, if you like the hunted system, you're going to probably like these games. If you don't like the hunted system, I promise you, you're not going to like these games. Like there's nothing like I haven't completely changed the system. And so I think the same thing with, with Gloomhaven. If you really enjoy Gloomhaven, you're probably going to really enjoy Frosthaven. So it makes a lot of sense to put that in the same campaign. But it's when you have all these like other things. It's almost kind of like back in the day where people would put a t-shirt in there or they put like stickers or things like this. Like, what are we, what are you doing? Like focus on the thing. Don't try to add all these ancillary things in there just to make a little extra money or just because it's cool, because it feels good, kind of an ego boost to see people walking around with your logo on their t-shirt. Like, no, get rid of that stuff. Focus in and really lean into what, like you're saying, the star of the show, because mm -hmm. I think you have a lot more success. Right, right. Um, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned um, Hunted because there, there are a couple of campaigns that I've run in the past that have had multiple products and uh, that have done well. And one of them that I thought of was the, you know, the, the Hunted games. You've got, um, gosh, what was it? Uh, the the one, the Die Hard and Alien. Uh, yeah. First two were Kobayashi Tower and Mining Colony 415, that's which right. were uh, loosely based on some uh, 80s action <laughs> movies that were inspiring to me. Yeah. Very loosely, loosely, loosely based. Yes, yes. Uh, Yippee Kaye, um, TM. <laughs> so, yes, I, I do think that that campaign is a great example of one that had a very clear message of, hey, uh, what it came down to. And I was looking at it as the from the perspective of a backer. I thought, okay, the Kobayashi Tower game is the hunted system with dice rolling for success. The uh, mining colony 415 was, and this was years ago, and I still remember just because, you know, from the perspective of a backer and fan, mining colony 415 was dexterity. And if you like dexterity, get this one, you like flick this into the, to the box to shoot aliens and that kind of thing. Um, and then you added the ability to roll dice for people that still wanted to play, but didn't want to do the dexterity thing. And, and whatnot. Um, and I thought that was very successful because in both cases, it was, I was learning about one thing and it was like two implementations of, of the one thing. So if I, if all I knew about was the hunted system, I would say, do I like, you know, fleeing aliens and, and, and that kind of theme, or do I like, you know, rescuing my wife from the top of the tower at Christmas Eve? Um, you know, and that's the, you know, the only decision item, or maybe both, why not both, you know, and um, in similar vein, I had another, another client, uh, actually Chad Kreisen runs, a, a, he, he runs all the ads on Board Game Geek, I think, and he, but he also runs a puzzle business and he has his really cool 3D puzzles and he ran a campaign recently, you know, we helped him run a campaign for his puzzle business that was for three entirely different puzzles that were 3D wood puzzles and just three very different scenes. And the offering was you can get one for this price, two for that price, or, or all three for the bundled price. 
And I felt like that was very successful. It was also just a very clear offering. You know, um, there wasn't a whole yeah. lot of. If you like one puzzle, yeah. Like if you like putting together puzzles, uh-huh. you're probably going to like putting together more puzzles. Yeah. <laughs> so, and at that point, it's it, like, like the offer is like, uh, can I afford two puzzles or three or you know, it's a very right. easy. And question. as long as and as long as one puzzle isn't like crazy Cthulhu, you know, demons popping up. And the other one is like rainbows and unicorns and stuff. Over it. It's like, okay, yeah. now we have maybe a, a product market mismatch, but yeah, yeah it, it just, it just makes sense. And from a manufacturing standpoint, it and shipping, it makes sense to do a lot of these things at the same time. But another thing you can do though, you could run a campaign in August and then you run another campaign in September or October. And then if you line those up correctly, you can still ship them at the same time and save money on the freight shipping. If you're like really thinking business-wise and trying to like get the most efficiency out of your logistics and stuff like that, you can still do that kind of thing. But back to your point, this, I create a star of the show. Now with the hunted game games, the star is the system. It's the way the cards play off of each other. And now it's just an exploration of what can we do with this? So in for the next campaign, again, multiple games, but one of them is a fantasy, pixel art, roguelike, video game type experience. Same system, but you're running around like a video game and it's got all sorts of mechanisms that kind of lean into that. The other main game in you know with that campaign, you get to be Winnie the Pooh. You get to be Alice in Wonderland. You get to be Peter Pan. You get to be all these like storybook characters running around the storybook world. It's modular, so if you want to have Winnie the Pooh fighting Captain Hook, you can do that. And I was like, okay, that's fun. And, you know, some people are going to be interested in one or the other, but I feel like most people who land on that page are going to go, oh, that looks great. And this looks great. I can learn one system, which is like 75% of the rules. And it only takes me another five minutes to learn the rules for the other game. So it's another thing. It's like, once you understand one game and how it works, you can play them all. It's just going to take you a couple of minutes to understand the nuances and like how, what makes this different. And, you know, this one's dice rolling in the, with the fantasy one uh, is, is D20s. But it's like custom D20s that have different number of very I'm really excited about these dice. Um, and it's got this like D&D style dice system, which makes sense. The storybook one, it's tokens. It's It uses these like special tokens that, you know, you're doing different things with. So it's a different system. But again, it takes like two minutes to learn the extra little rules about it. But it's one customer avatar. And it's one group of people that have hopefully, you know, probably backed games in the past, these hunting games. And they're like, oh, I want to check out the next one in the system. I enjoy the way this plays. Let's let's go to Wonderland. Let's go to the Hundred Acre Wood and see what happens there. So anyway, I think I think if you do something like that, or I've seen also people have success when they did, you know, two or three games that were still like very different games, very different experiences, but still it's the exact same group of people who were interested in that type of game. You know, it's family weight, you know, two to four player things or roll and rights. You know, you could have like three roll and rights in the same campaign that are just very different experiences. But if you like one roll and right, you probably like a bunch of other roll and rights. I think you can have success doing that. But again, it comes down to understanding who your customer is and then marketing towards them. Definitely. And I, you know, I think that certain companies do a really, really great job with their line of products. You know, if you want to be a professional and make a professional level income and treat it like a business and all of that, then um, I think that it makes sense from the very first product you ever make, maybe it was your your baby, the one that you were really passionate about. Um, when you make your second thing, it should it should uh, draw from the same pool as the first thing. 
whatever people really loved about the first thing should not be completely absent from the second. Uh, I do see people make that mistake uh, sometimes, and it's um, it's a bummer. But again, you know, to highlight people that I think do a great job, I think Isaac Childers does a great job with this. Um, he makes games that his fans really want. And uh, Jamie Stegmaier, you know, if you buy Wingspan and you're like, oh, I really loved that, you're probably really going to like Scythe. You're probably really going to like Pendulum. You're probably really going to like, you know, Viticulture because the, the, the feel is like, you know, I do a thing and it's, a, and then the next player does a thing. And it's not this super duper different system um, that you have to worry about. I, if I'm buying a Stonemeyer game, then I kind of know what I'm expecting. I'm expecting a Euro that will take, you know, 90 minutes or, or whatever, right? And so um, I think that there's a great benefit in just having a consistent message. Um, Awaken Realms, um, they uh, have obviously some massive games like Tainted Grail and ISS Vanguard that are huge, epic experiences. But then they came up with this line called Awaken Realms Light, where you're not going to get games like that. You're going to get games that play in 30 to 60 minutes. And, um, you know, and that was a really important branding decision that was made by them that I think, um, you know, will provide dividends over the long term. But um, I, I was I was really curious because, um, you know, with this first campaign that you, or, well, the most recent campaign that you ran with three different products, um, there were two things that you did that I thought were really, really great. And we were kind of talking about, um, you know, surveying your backers, prospective backers and whatnot. Um, I thought you did something that um, was really smart. You made it seem as though you had a, what I call a firm hand on the wheel, that even though you were electing to cancel, you um, came up with a plan that you had your, your, all the people watching were able to clearly understand where you were going. And it, it felt like a really professional um, handling of a situation like that. And you got people to buy into what it is that you were doing rather than just canceling and, you know, relaunching a month or two months later. And um, as a part of that, you surveyed your people. And I'd love to talk about that and just have hear from you as to like why you did that, um, what the rationale was, what the goal was and what the results were. Yeah. So this is I mean, you got to learn how to watch film. If you want to be good at anything, you got to film it. And then you got to go back and be honest with yourself. And I've obviously picked this up from sports, but then also from public speaking and all sorts of stuff where you just have to get the data, get the raw, real information, and then make choices based on that. You know, at Auburn, we had a big sign in our film room that said, you are what you put on tape. It doesn't matter what you think. doesn't matter what your mama said, what your dog says. doesn't matter what ESPN is telling you. What matters? you're in the practice room. Yeah. Well, what matters is what this tape says. Cause it's not going to lie. The eye in the sky doesn't lie is what a coach would say all the time. The eye in the sky don't lie. And when you go to backers, especially the ones that are going to fill out a survey, cause these are like the hots and colds, right? The people that fill out Amazon reviews, it's why they're almost always five or once. It's because they're either super excited about it or they really hate the thing. And that is giving them enough motivation to get online and go through the steps of like writing out a review. And it's the same thing when you, when you survey your backers, you are talking to the people who are either the most excited or the most frustrated. And that's going to give you some really interesting insight. Now, you have to take everything with a grain of salt. You have to look at everything and like, okay, what? where is this coming from? Because you're not going to please everybody. You could offer negative shipping. I could, I could tell you, Andrew, if you buy my product, I'm going to pay you $5 for shipping and people would still say it's not enough. 
you know, so you're like always going to run into these issues, but you have to get in there and find the little nuggets of wisdom, little nuggets of, of ideas, and then take that information and then turn it into action. And so a lot of what I got from it was I had just confused people. The page was too long. It had too many things going on. It was speaking to two different people. And so if I had you in the first half of the page, I lost you in the second half. If I didn't have you in the first half, you probably didn't make it to the second half. Or if you did, you're like, oh, this is a thing I want, but, uh, but I'd already burned you out. So, you know, having that mismatch of customer avatars. Okay, that was a very obvious thing. Um, another thing was, this is something I, I'm, I'm curious about. I don't have the data I wish I had on it, but I used GameFound instead of Kickstarter. A book is not a good GameFound fit. Duh. Like, I know that. I don't... I love GameFound though. Like, I think I just wanted it to be true. I think I just like put my blinders on and I was like, no, we're going to use GameFound because it is such a superior platform to Kickstarter. It is so much better from a creator standpoint, a business standpoint, and a backer standpoint. It is better across the board in so many ways and they keep getting better almost weekly and I'm so excited about the future of GameFound. However. And you get no disagreements from me either on that front. However, they are not a good fit right now for books. Even books mm -hmm. about games. Even books about games when you have a pretty decent size following. I mean, there's 15,000 people in the Facebook community. There's over 10,000 people on my email list. Like I feel like going in, I could pull enough people that it would, you know, it wouldn't matter that GameFound is not the best place. But that start, more I started thinking about it, it's like GameFound is a very specific part of the market. People that are interested in like very heavy, very hobby style, modern games, you know, expensive stuff. That's kind of the crowd, but that's not necessarily the crowd for, of people that are interested in a book about getting into game design. So I started wondering, I was like, how many people in my audience, like the audience for this book, don't even have a GameFound account? Not that they can't create one, but again, it's another barrier to entry. They've never been there because that's not the style of stuff they're into. They're just like, they've only been in the hobby a couple years. They're not over here backing, you know, these $200 miniatures based products. It's like, oh, okay. So I'm, again, I was, I was having to overcome so many obstacles. It's like, what am I doing? Let's, let's just simplify, make things easier. But I'll, Real quick, I do want to ask you that before I keep going to some of the things I learned that were just these major epiphanies. What are your thoughts? GameFound versus Kickstarter. Uh, Gloomhaven, new campaign. It's over on BackerKit, not Kickstarter. How much How much is that affecting that campaign? How much does it affect campaigns in general? What are you seeing? Uh, well, uh, it was very interesting when Gloomhaven launched their campaign on BackerKit. They actually crashed the BackerKit server with the number of people that went there. Um, so I do look at BackerKit as more of a fledgling platform that's really trying to make a name for itself. Um, but I, um, I, I, I have a very, very high opinion of GameFound as well um, and Kickstarter because as as annoyed as I am at, you know, that for years and years, Kickstarter has neglected their board game audience, which has made up about 40% of the money that they make each year. Um, you know, by far the largest niche on Kickstarter. Um, they're kind of turning it around too. And you can see that they're starting to add features and make adjustments. It's almost and, like competition is good for everybody. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Kickstarter absolutely moved into you know, like they, uh, so game found, it tries to be an all in one, which I actually think is a bad thing. It's one of my, um, negative marks against game found is they're trying to be an all in one solution. And I think that's a mistake. I think they should just do what they're really, really good at. Um, and of course, you know, let, let us do all of their marketing for every single client they have on their platform. Uh, I have no stake in this fight, uh, obviously. Uh, but the, 
tongue in cheek. It was a joke uh, for the squares that are listening, you know. Um, but the uh, so they're trying to be an all-in-one platform. They are by far a better user experience. They're dominating Kickstarter everywhere except for the audience, the organic traffic. Kickstarter has seven and a half million people that visit Kickstarter.com. Um, three million ish of which um, go to are, are exclusively like board game people um you can see on like well i can see because i have um i don't know how you would get this access but i can see how many backers kickstarter has it's like roughly two and a half million backers um is the backer size for uh you know in any given year for uh board games related things board game rpg you know any tabletop related thing about two and a half million backers and so they get three million people a month uh unique visitors and GameFound. um I believe they get one and a half million. I could be wrong. And I know Alex Radcliffe will probably be able to provide clarity here, uh, but it's in any case, any way you slice it, it's not as much as Kickstarter. So the challenge, I mean, but you know, a million and a half people a month is plenty for, for your campaign. If you want to go, it, I mean, if you've got a good fit, you know, as you said, like I have your game, I've got a buddy of mine who's launching a game that I can't say anything about was thinking about, Kickstarter or GameFound and elect, you know, they, they launched on Kickstarter before to success. And now they're going to GameFound because uh, they, they just have a good fit, even though they know that there's a larger organic market on Kickstarter, they're going to GameFound because GameFound's organic market is plenty big and they have their audience that they're going to bring. Um, so he made me promise not to tell the name of the game, but um, I think I, I see that that's becoming more and more of a common thing. Um, I will say that GameFound is not a good fit for, light party games it's not a good fit for books um it's not a great fit for i honestly i feel like midway euros you know planet unknown we had a real serious conversation about should we launch on kickstarter or should we launch on GameFound? and i was leaning toward kickstarter and uh you know but i mean GameFound was right in there and ended up they ended up deciding to go with GameFound. um it, it was one of those things that i just felt like you know hey maybe they would make a little more money from new people discovering planet unknown that are into lighter weight games that don't have like an extremely high price tag attached to them that are that more like impulse buyers i feel like are on kickstarter um so that's that i guess that's the difference for me yeah it all makes a lot of sense all right switching back to things i learned from both the feedback and just talking to a group of people that i trust right i think that's one thing you you have to have is a group of people that will tell you the honest truth, that will look at the things that you're doing, and, and not that they're trying to hurt your feelings, but that they're that they're just going to be like, "Hey, have you thought about this? Did you look at that? That that seems pretty mediocre." Like they'll just be honest with you. And I had a really good conversation with my buddy Kyle, and he and I were talking about things. And one of the one of the ideas I got out of this conversation was, one, I'm an idiot. I I'm so dumb. I completely just lost track and forgot about what is my main unique selling position in the market. People don't come to the board game design lab podcast or the website or any of the books I've written, anything I've done in the past because of me personally, right? I've designed a lot of games. I have over 10 on the market at this point. Like I've got lots of experience. Hopefully I've built up some credibility. I know I've been in people's ears, you know, people have heard more of my stories than like their family member stories. Like if you've listened to all the episodes of the board games Island podcast, you've had like in theory, more conversations with me than with people you're closest to just because that's so much content. 
But what people really come to this channel for, this podcast for, is not me. It's the people I'm talking to. I am the bridge between all the designers out there trying to figure it out to the designers who are the best in the world. Like that's my position in the market. And in my previous books, I leaned into that. I interviewed people. I got their thoughts. I got their information. I created the questions. I created the content around it. I did the editing. I kind of put it all together, packaged it, marketed all that kind of stuff. But what people really wanted, what they're really interested in, were those folks' thoughts and ideas. And so with this new book, it was just me. And again, I've got lots of experience. I'm, I'm taking all these podcasts, interviews, and ideas and kind of consolidating and putting it into a book. But it was just my name on the cover. Just my name on the marketing. Well, well, duh. Like people aren't as interested in me as they are in like Rob Davio and Ryder Knizia and Matt Leacock and Eric Lang and like all these amazing people, Elizabeth Hargrave, like all these phenomenal designers. So for the relaunch, what I've done is I've reached out to all my favorite people in the industry, all the people who are the best of the best, the people who have had incredibly awesome content, full value packed podcast episodes and people who have contributed to books in the past. And I said, hey, I've got lots of questions that I want to then take your thoughts and ideas and not just take the like organic amalgamation of like all these ideas in my head, but actually take your quotes word for word, put them in the book and be like, okay, this is what Reiner Knizia thinks about what makes a fun board game. And let me, let's unpack that, right? And let's create some graphics and some great, like really nice graphic design and put it throughout the book. So it stands out, you know, when Rob Davio was like, I can't put my finger on what, what fun is, but I know it when I see it. Okay, well, let's talk about that. Versus this other designer who's like, okay, fun is this, this, and this. And they're very specific. Okay, cool. Let's look at the the differences there and unpack these these ideas. Not just based on what I've gained from the podcast, but what from what I'm gaining specifically in direct interviews with amazing designers. And then on the marketing, on the Kickstarter page, let's put their faces and their names and like, hey, do you want to know why Rob Davio can't define fun? Find out in this book. Uh, it just, what's that unlocked? I was like, okay. That, anyway, I was a little frustrated with myself. I, I actually find that is one of the most fascinating things that uh, that uh, one of the most fascinating discoveries. Um, I, I mean, I've been a marketer for gosh, I started in two thousand nine, so it's been about fourteen years that I've been a a digital marketer. That's one of the most fascinating discoveries um, of my career personally, because it is such a nuance to um, you know your unique selling position. I think the unique selling position is something that people should know. It's like, what, why would I buy your thing instead of something else? Someone else's um, same price, same relative amount of fun that I think is in the box. And it's like, oh, well, because my game is angels versus demons with saints caught in the middle. If you like that theme, then you'd be an idiot not to buy mine. Um, right. And, and so your unique selling position is something that needs to be very, very clear. And that's what you lean into and um, it was to me, I, I, it was an epiphany as much to me as it was to you. As I, as you told that to me, I realized, you know, this was we had this conversation a, a week or a couple of weeks ago, and when you told that to me, and my mind was exploded. I'm like, oh no way, that's right. That is why I bought all your books. That is why, you know, and I, I'm honored that I was able to write a marketing chapter in one of your books too. But um, you know, and I still, I still get people constantly. Um, asking me questions about that chapter that I wrote several years ago for for that book, and um, it's uh, you are the bridge. You know that's why I've always listened to you. I've listened to 
well over 300 episodes of wait you i mean i guess just, just over a, 300 just episodes yeah. right <laughs> just <over. laughs> yeah so i've listened to almost every episode and um you know that's that's why i've listened to all those episodes is because you connect me with people that are way smarter that are the supposed experts in the industry that i should just learn from and it's like when i know that when gabe barrett uh, bring somebody on and ask them a question. It's almost like this, this guard can be, can be um, put down of like, you know, there's this shortcut that consumers take that um, leads in the selling process where they say to themselves, I don't believe what you're saying is true. That's a shortcut consumers take. And you have to kind of overcome that with evidence. Well, you've spent a career overcoming that objection by saying, this is an expert in their industry that has achieved great levels of success and you should believe them. Don't believe me. I'm just interviewing and believe them. And so this guard is completely down. When I listen to the BGDL podcast and I hear people, I'm actually really looking forward to what it is that they say, you know, so that I can learn from it. I'm not debating whether or not what they say is true or not. And um, I think that that is probably, I mean, I just feel like you're going to rock it up. I mean, you're going to double, triple in size over the next three years, just because of your understanding of that and how you lean into it. Yeah. And as far as like a takeaway, because if you're designing a game like that, you're going to have a very different, unique selling proposition. Like I'm a very interesting context and situation because this is a book, you know, a lot of times we're talking about games and stuff like that. But what would you say for a creator who's thinking about, you know, going to camp uh, crowdfunding, running a campaign, how do they figure out their unique selling proposition? How do they come up with that? How do they find that epiphany moment of like, oh, here is the way that I stand out. You know, Seth Godin has this amazing concept. He wrote a book about it called The Purple Cow. And the idea is that different is better than better. And that it comes from this, this thought of like, if you're driving by a field of cows and you look out there and they're all black and white, except for the purple one, that's the one you're going to notice. That's the one you're going to remember. And so how can you be different in a marketplace full of seemingly the same, which we are. There's so many games coming out. Like they're not that different. Not really. Like, you know, some to a certain degree, obviously, but not overwhelmingly different. So how can someone figure out what makes them a purple cow? Well, um, so in the beginning, when you are just kind of getting your start, um, you oftentimes are, you know, bit by a mosquito that inflicts you with the disease of entrepreneurism. Um, or like, I'm going to design a board game. I have a really great idea. Or I really wish this particular game existed. And, you know, and then, uh, you know, year or two years for me, seven years later, when you're finally about to deliver, you're like, holy cow, that disease afflicted me for like a few months and wore off. And then I was caught with all this debt thinking, oh my goodness, I better finish this. What is the, uh, what's the saying I saw um, like a couple of days ago? It said, we don't do it because it's easy. We do it because we thought it would be easy. Yeah, now we're stuck and we have to finish. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I find that first project, you should really just let your passion fuel you because there is a reason that your subconscious understands that you may not be able to articulate that this thing needs to exist. And so what I find is it, it, it um, I think this is really a target market and customer avatar discussion. How, how do you define your target market? Who is your customer avatar? And in the beginning, the advice that I give, rather than all the mistakes and the things you shouldn't do, you are designing a game for people like you that want the thing that you want. So that's a fine way to start. And then after a while, you'll have people 
that are really interested. You know, I had, for example, my uh, deliverance fans, uh, you know, as I said before, angels and demons and saints and uh, oh my, they're, I was excited about designing this really cool game with this theme and whatnot. And after a while, I had several thousand people that were on board that were like, yeah, we're excited too. And I would ask them questions. I remember sitting down with Sam Healy once and he said, I like how all my actions are on this single card here. He has like a big oversized angel card with art and all the things that angel can do. And um, I never thought of it like that. I was like, oh yeah, I guess that is a thing. You don't have to remember that there are eight special actions and four basic actions and you know, whatever. Um, and I began to lean into that and I started talking to people. Oh yeah, don't worry. It's not, it looks complicated, but all the things you need to know are right here on this card in front of you. I say that in every single demo now. And it just, I mean, my mom who her number one game is Wordle, uh, and she's never played another, uh, she was able to play deliverance and have a blast because she was, her focus was just channeled to what was in front of her. She didn't need to pay attention to all the cards. She just needed to look at what was in front of her, right? And um, I think that uh, the most valuable thing that you can do, you're defining your target market and who would like it and what do I say to get them to like buy this thing or to want to buy this thing or want to play it. Um, eventually, you need to ask other people what they think and what makes them excited and why they would buy. And you know, in, in your case also, Gabe, you asked somebody who knew you and was able to tell you what your unique selling position yeah. was. Um, well, I mean, that's kind of what he, that's kind of what happened. In your case. He didn't yeah. even ask that question. I don't even remember the question he asked, but it was something to the effect <laughs> of like maybe people forgot about you because I was gone for a year. Like the podcast went on hiatus for a little less than a year, and he's like, maybe people just kind of forgot who you are, and then I, and then that caused me to start thinking, who am I? Like for real, like what is my position in the market? And like pondering that and just literally sitting at my desk and staring off into the, you know, into the void and pondering life's great mysteries. And then I had this just moment of going, I am a bridge. That's what I've always been. I've always been a bridge from designers to the best designers in the world. Oh, oh, okay. Well, the good news is I can fix this. You know, this wasn't like some insurmountable problem with like the book just sucks. Nobody wants it. It's like, no, I just need to position it the way I position all the other stuff and do it the same way I do all the other stuff that people have been excited about and have been on board with and listened to and, and you know gotten value out of for years, just do the same thing I've always done. <laughs> and then uh, hopefully, now we'll see. We'll find out if it's successful. Uh, but I feel like it at least has a much better chance. Yeah, but yeah, you're you're right. You know, and in, in the end, I think we try to, uh, so marketers called and I get uh, responses from my clients all the time when I tell them, who is your customer avatar? They, their first response when they when we talk about that and they understand what I'm asking is like, why does it matter? You know, it's just like a, a very complicated thing that uh, may not really have relevance to me right now. Do I really need to worry about this? And I think that there's great value. It's like uh, the the concept of um, one hour of planning is akin to five hours of time savings and work, you know, work. Uh, and I think this customer avatar will teach you a lot about who your people are. And you may have different customer avatars. As you said, you have a group that is very interested in like learning from uh, through you as a bridge uh, from other experts. And this, these are books and whatnot. And then there's another group that, that will buy your course because they are intent on going pro. You've gone pro. They want to learn from you um, in, on that front. And I'm sure that you'll also bring in um, other experts uh, for, uh, for, sake, or, uh, for the benefit of those 
of those people because you are a bridge, right? Um, and it's just that extra value. I find that the customer avatar is a more detailed target market. You're actually naming the person. You're giving them, you know, uh, you're telling me what their hobbies are. You're telling me how old and how many children and what their demographics and their income and what they like and what they don't like. And um, you look at yourself. So, you know, when you define your target market, it's you, people like you that want the thing that you want also. Um, who, who am I? As you said, I, for me, I am, you know, I'm a 38 year old man with uh, soon to be seven children. And I quit playing video games because I was obsessing and I, there's no way in heck I could manage a business and a family at the same time. Um, so either, you know, maybe I go real casual or just don't play those things, but I play board games because I can play them and then put them away. And in theory, that's like, I'm able to compartmentalize that piece of my life now, but I really, really miss all the games that I used to play. So I'm hunting for experiences that are like that. And then, you know, that's kind of how I start, you know, I love Lord of the Rings. I, yeah, I used to really like, um, I don't know, like, well, I guess I'm really into sci-fi now and other things too. Right. And, um, so then I, you take that who, who you are trying to understand yourself and then you go to someone else and say, okay, this person, um, will say, Jonathan, I've got a, a fan named Jonathan who is, um, very, you know, just been excellent. Um, he is different than me. And what, what does he like about the product? And how will it change what I think? Maybe he thinks Lord of the Rings is okay, but loves Harry Potter. And he also, you know, maybe he attends church every every weekend and whatever. And it's like, oh yeah, that's right. I attend church too. Maybe that part, that commonality is relevant um, to my customer avatar. And then all of a sudden, my customer avatar is going to change to, okay, I've got this customer avatar. His name's Chris. He's 35 years old. He's got two kids that... Uh, you know, he's, he's married, he's got, uh, you know, maybe his wife stays at home, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, all of that and trying to understand what they're interested in and what they like you for is, is going to make you a whole lot more money than if you didn't understand those things, because those things will inform the way that you speak on your Kickstarter page, the, the actual like rubber meets the road, the way that you position your offerings, what you offer to begin with, you know, the book is the book a good thing for you to be offering? And the answer is yes, absolutely. But in this, you know, this with this new understanding that you have, um, you know, you're you're now able to position it for your customer avatar. And I, I have a feeling it's gonna it's gonna go gangbusters, you know, as books, you know, do. Yeah. Well, hopefully so. And uh, anyone listening to this that's interested, it's called Find the Fund. The, the plan, the goal right now is to launch on July 17th. And yeah, we'll, we'll just see what happens. I'm going to be sending out, you know, more emails and, and Facebook messages and uh, posts and things like that. And again, hopefully this time around, people, when they get there, will immediately identify the value. And they'll say, oh, this is the thing for me. It will be, you know, streamlined, a lot less going on, much more focused in and leaning into what makes me unique in the market in general, and hopefully hopefully it all works out. Well, Andrew, this has been excellent, man. Uh, tell people about where they can find you. I know, you know, I, I talk about your services uh, pretty much at the beginning of every podcast. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you know, if you want to do a little uh, shout out for your stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, my name is Andrew Lowen. I run uh, Next Level Web and also Crowdfunding Nerds. Crowdfunding Nerds because it's a way cooler name than Next Level Web for crowdfunding stuff. And uh, it just feels like who, who I am, you know. 
Um, so you can go to crowdfundingnerds.com. You can learn about us and, um, and our, our marketing services. We have um, our own podcast, which is called the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, where we actually talk about uh, case studies and you know related to marketing. If you are gearing up for a Kickstarter, it is a wealth of knowledge. We have a, maybe 125 episodes, 135 episodes now that, uh, that you can find anywhere. You know, if, if the PG Dell's there, Crowdfunding Nerds is, is probably there too in regard to like Spotify and Apple Podcasts and whatnot. And um, gosh, we've got a Crowdfunding Nerds course for marketing. If you're, if you want to know how to run Facebook ads and that kind of thing, crowdfundingnerds.com forward slash course. Uh, we've got our Crowdfunding Nerds community on Facebook where um, you can ask marketing questions. You can get feedback on your, um, you know, Kickstarter preview page and ask, uh, you know, just on, you know, some of the, some of the stuff that Gabe and I are talking about right now, we're kind of diagnosing a problem, a challenge, and it's something that we're looking to overcome. We do that all the time in the crowdfunding nurse community. We really like to have those marketing questions. You've got about a thousand people in there that, that uh, would love to talk to you about just any question you've got. Don't come in there and ask, uh, you know, any feedback would be appreciated. I want a specific question from you. If you want help from me, then you need to have a specific question and I will answer it. I promise you. Preferably um, before you launch the actual campaign. Yeah. But you know what? Even if you, even after you launch, I mean, I am happy to do that. Just please don't spam your Kickstarter link and be like, you know, any feedback would be appreciated. Here's my Kickstarter link. Um, that is not how we work. We want to help you. We want to help you make more money. We want to help you be more successful. And if that is with our marketing services uh, that you're paying for, great. But we have so many resources out there that are free meant for you to just rise higher. So, um, you know, make more money so that you get so busy, you should probably hire us to just take one more thing off your bucket. That's or off your, off your list. That's what I want to do. <laughs> that's what I, that's what I want to be. Awesome. Well, Andrew, like I've said in the past, it's been a pleasure working with you on all these campaigns. It's been just enjoyable to have these conversations and go back and forth. It's this, I think the first time we've ever filmed, we, we have these conversations pretty regularly, but yeah. now we're filming it and we're turning it into content. And so yeah, <laughs> I appreciate you joining me. Appreciate your time. That's awesome, Gabe. Uh, so such a pleasure and always such a pleasure to listen every week. <laughs>